Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversation about belonging and otherness. Each program will reach for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist with Emma Troop, an experimental theater group in New York City, and I am here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendratt, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teaching of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. So the, these three poisons mm-hmm. from Buddhism mm-hmm. of greed, one way of looking at greed, and I did talk to Alan Wallace about this, is that greed is a belief in the material world. Mm-hmm. Because anything that you regard as greed is when you're trying to gather material things. That which brings about separation so, too, yes. Well, greed is when you try to get the stuff for yourself. Right, right. right. And so the stuff might be, you try to get yourself, your stuff might be your vitamins, it might be your exercise, it might be, you know, your property, mm-hmm. your, your clothes, your mental state, anything your money, you, any, your money yeah. anything you're gathering for yourself to protect yourself, it means you believe in the material world. How do you move out of a belief in the material world? You have to, on some level, and this is where Don Hoffman comes in, you have to stop believing that that is reality, that the material world is reality. Well, spirituality does and doesn't. What I find is that there are many spiritual people who do not question the reality of the physical world. they What they do is they break it into kind of a dualism, like I'm gonna take care of my body and do the things for my body that I think are right, but then over here I'm gonna say that I'm interdependent with everybody, but over here I'm not even gonna to talk to people yeah, that so I think dualism. are different from me or believe things differently. So that there's a kind of mix and match in the yeah, spiritual world. Yeah, yeah, like if, yeah. if you truly surrender yeah. to the idea that this world is not a material world, you are on a different page. And not all spirituality holds to non-dualism. Well, not all spirituality actually knows how to relate to science. I mean, it's like there's so much spirituality that poses itself as being against science right. well, when or you think outside of, of science. Thomas Aquinas, I mean, he was bringing in the scientific aspect to the cosmology of Christianity, and he had to have the, the police guard his monastery yeah. because he was a heretic. And, yeah. you know, the fact that they didn't, you know, yeah. But well, that it was, was, again, the argument between what was religion the, and science yeah. was already in place there. The and, 11th or 12th say, century, right. Yeah. right. And with Newton, it's the same. I mean, I mean, all of the early physicists and physical scientists were, were all people of the cloth. I mean, they were clerics, yes. and yes. so they were scholars, and they had to be. But just trying to kind of bring us up to the present moment about the fitness thing. So if you look at the point of view of what is it that causes you to lose track of the bigger picture. Uh, the Buddhists would say it's greed, hatred, and ignorance. It's ignorance of the no-self, 
then it's greed and wanting to protect yourself on a material plane, and then it's hatred and wanting to defend yourself aggressively against others who believe something different or who actually you think are different or you think are your enemies. You know, any, any of those hatred moves where you try to aggressively push someone away, that is also defense. That's the defense of your fitness. So if you look from the point of view that survival fitness has zero relationship with the truth, you might say, wow, I might be, maybe I need to get interested in the truth. And what is the truth? Mm -hmm. And so one of the teachings from the Buddhist perspective is the truth is that the world that we're in, samsara, the world of life and death, is always imperfect, impermanent, impersonal. Life and death are bound together. If you come here, you're going to die. You're always dying. The moment you start living, you're dying. They're not separated. And so all of these conditions, love and hate, life and death, inside, outside, above, below, they're all connected. They're all absolutely connected in this reality. Now, this reality has limitations. It has limitations, and it's, but we've been studying it avidly since particularly the beginning of, well, there are a lot of ways to talk about science, or there's a lot of ways to talk. We've been studying it avidly since the beginning, probably since we've been here. And as probably some of our, I think some, some ideas have been lost in the telling of what reality is. Well, it always in gets history, lost. so yeah, not I mean, all of it is carried known over. or yeah. carried over right. into current right. times. But let's just say we've studied it scientifically well enough to know that our science is going to have to change now. And so the way, so here's the way that Don Hoffman sees it Do you want to tell uh, Facebook that? Taste, tell it that our science has to change. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> listen, I'm not on Facebook listen, very much. Facebook. Right. I keep our science has thing, to change. You know, uh, with with yeah. Buddhism, where it says, you know, the scholars say there are 84,000 paths to liberation and freedom from self-delusion, according to the Buddha. Yeah. And that understanding is very important. Right. It's the so thing is, is you yeah. can have 84,000 paths that you don't, and then you don't understand. Right. You know, right. and in right. the end, you have yeah. it still. Yeah. And, and what is, what do you think the main reason is? Oh, I mean, I, I pose ignorance. these questions. It's good. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good answer, Eleanor. It's ignorance of the no self. Yeah. yeah. And so it means that's that you That's a big one for us in the West. You are, well, not just the yeah. West. It's all ah. over. In China, it's the same. Ah. I mean, it's everywhere. Because what does it mean? Well, because it's also the traditions that were deeper and wider and more dimensional there have been lost. It's not just that. I don't think that we've ever gotten to a point as a species where we've stopped promoting our survival fitness uh -huh. and recognize that we have to work together as a species in order to go on. Or here. perish. Yeah. Well, that's what you're saying, that the, the, new, the new epoch, the Aquarian Age, is all about coming back into community without the ability to do that, without the ability to work with one another, you know, our survival is really threatened. Well, right? you know, on the Which, podcast, uh, this, we've been saying that yeah. from the beginning. This is about being We've gone able... as far to the other extreme as we possibly can, and we're like, right. you know, annihilating everything. Right. But I think it's because we are at the edge of whatever this paradigm is. And so when you are sitting on a bed that is collapsing the posts of the bed get more and more rigid in order to hold up the mattress. Yeah. As the mattress collapses, those posts get really, really brittle, and eventually they break. 
but I think we are right at the edge of them breaking right now. Yeah. And so, you know, what, what has to break and what really has to break is the idea that we don't have to work with other human beings in order to get this done. Mm-hmm. If you think that we're going to solve the crisis on the climate, that we're going to solve the difficulties about whatever the virus is or any other pandemics in the future, or if you think that we're going to solve anything without relating to those people that we disagree with, that is the thing that humans have not been able to do through this entire long time. Whether they're hunter-gatherers or they're agrarian or whatever, they've been at war. They've been at war among their own species again and again and again. Well, that is the delusion. That's the delusion. And that's the delusion of self-protection and self-promotion and your own survival versus... The truth. That's the clash that we're in right now. And that's what Donald Hoffman is saying. He's got the formula now, scientifically, mathematically, that shows that if you focus on your own survival, you lose the truth. You lose the truth. And that's for homo sapiens, those who basically tell the story. We tell the story. That's our job. We say, what does it mean? We tell the story. If we just focus on survival fitness... We lose the truth, and that's a fact. And that's a fact of the very cutting edge of science. So what is the truth then? So this is where this is where things get really strange and they get into the matrix and so on. The truth is that the trees, the tree, the hand, the spoon, the moon is not there. We are interfacing. This is the way he talks about it. He calls it the interface. Uh, theory of perception, the interface theory, ITP, the interface theory of perception. And, and what he shows originally from studying, he said that when he was at MIT, he was studying the psychology of perception, visual perception, and he was working with mathematical models. And he said at some point, the math told him we construct the visible world. It is not given to us. It's not there. Mm-hmm. We're constructing it. And he said at that moment, he took a pause. He couldn't, I mean, there was no scientific theory that backed that insight, that mathematical mm-hmm. insight. But he began to question what is this world that we see and that we feel and that we push up against? Is there a consensus? Do we see some reality out there? Is there a moon? Is there a spoon or a tomato or a tree? Or is there the body of Eleanor? Right. I was just thinking, is that Polly there? Is that Polly? Is there a body of Polly? Hello? Yeah. So basically, his long and short answer is no, there is not. And so what is it that you are seeing? I keep picturing Tron. Where they're driving around in the grid. I don't know what's just Tron It's is. a computer program. Oh, okay, um, okay. And so, yes, he uses, I'll tell you, mostly what he's using mm-hmm. is virtual reality and virtual yeah. reality right. headsets. See, that's what he's using. I was thinking grid. Yeah, it's yes. basically yes. like yeah. a grid. Yeah. yeah, that's what I would, the headsets, the, headsets, the kind of yeah. way that they're talking about reality with those headsets and, and how it affects the individual who has those headsets on. Well, and yeah. then the fact is that you have one on all yeah. the time and you right. and you have a hard time taking it off. And well, that's, that's the, the issue. And so, so his interface theory of 
of perception yeah. is that it's it aligns completely with Buddhism entirely. It's like a one-to-one alignment. And then it also aligns with constructivism in psychology, everything from Piaget's ideas about development, which is when the infant is born, there's no physical world. The infant makes that world by pushing and pulling and grasping and so on. And it's called the sensory motor perception of the world. Eventually there's a visual world that's organized. Then there's a world of this and that. So these theories are a nice little trigram. They all kind of like fit together. Which theories? His theory, Buddhism, so, and the constructivism, constructivism and psychology. Yes, they well, do. That was they also do fit together. The thing that I just did with you know Deepak Chopra, where he talked, was talking about the nature of reality. Also, trying to unpack this as right. well in terms of the table's not the table, the right. glass is not the glass. Yeah. So, so Donald Hoffman, yeah. being a mathematician. And as he re- returns again and again, yeah. he said he, he accepts yeah. no hand-waving. Yeah. He accepts no sort of, oh, this is the way it seems to be. He wants to see the math. He yeah. wants to see the scientific yeah. proof. He wants. Remember, a, a scientific proof is a mathematical proof. Any empirical demonstration of science is simply a demonstration. And a lot of people forget that. You're like you do an experiment, a double-blind study or whatever, that's called a demonstration. A proof is always mathematical. And mathematics seem to fall outside of our normal consensual reality. They've allowed people to bootstrap their way over centuries of time in understanding uh, you know, the physical world in a way that they couldn't understand that they used mathematics, which then they could do a proof of a demonstration, starting with Pythagoras particularly. But let's go back to the present moment. So Don Hoffman says that he now is in the process of coming up with a mathematical formula by studying the cutting edge of physics, which is with this group of eight physicists who have decided that they can no longer use space-time as the foundation. That means the speed of light is not the foundation for their physics anymore. What we thought was the absolute foundation for everything was the speed of light. Very exciting, actually, when you really kind of, you know, just sit in your chair and hold your seat. Yeah, yeah, because you realize that there are scientists... There is no seat. That, yeah, that's right, there is no seat. There are scientists out there that are completely onto this, and they are not doing any hand-waving. So anyway, what he's saying is Can you that, please articulate hand-waving? What he means by hand-waving is, that, is something like this. He says, okay, you've got all kinds of neuroscientists and you have a lot of neurobiologists especially who say we will find consciousness in the human brain. We will find it somewhere, Mm -hmm. maybe it'll be over here by the... Why are they waving their hands? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. On the spectrum? (laughs) No, no, they probably are, but that's a side (laughs) aside. I just don't like, I need to know. Basically, here's the hard problem of consciousness. This is what's called, David Chalmers, the philosopher, calls it the hard problem of consciousness. How can you get a subjective experience like the taste of vanilla, the smell of garlic, how can you get that from an object that's called the brain, from something called the brain? Now, the neuroscientists and the neurobiologists have literally thousands of correlations. Like if you block this area 
on the right in the right hemisphere then you're going to block all of the color green in your left hemisphere you can't see it or if you block off this or use a magnet here or there you're going to get this kind of response in other words if i do this to your brain or that to your brain it correlates with some experience that you're having and there are many many correlations so you can see the brain on meditation the brain on compassion you can see the brain on exercise and now we've got these functional mris and so you get some scan of the brain you what get a the picture brain of the brain on covid look like the, i'm sure they've got pictures of the brain on covid i haven't you, seen are it are they but... only working with five senses or are they working multi-sensory well it's multi-sensory uh-huh. because the these functional mris uh-huh. now this machinery is very very good and so when i was at the mind and life research institute i must have seen at least 60 different brain scans on various kinds of compassion where people were doing meta or they were doing other kinds of compassion and exercise and then you see the scans now the scans aren't exactly the same for every person but they approximate the same brain areas unless you're um you're not what do they call it neural atypical or whatever if if you're neural atypical you have a different area that lights up blah 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 right so what so what what uh what Don Hoffman is saying you don't is care about brains that, that basically these neuroscientists have been waving their hands they're saying because we have all of these correlations because we have all this evidence and because actually the sort of double helix of life is related to genetics and so we've got the secret of life we'll certainly get the secret of consciousness the idea is we've gotten the secret of life we know the big bang we know some things about what is happening in the subatomic world. And so we're going to get consciousness, for heaven's sakes. We're going to get it out of the brain. We're going to get it in the microtubules, or we're going to get it out of the cingulate gyrate. We're in there. We're, we're looking I around. Mean, I feel like everyone we're, knows that consciousness. No, no, no. I know. Not the neuroscientists. They don't they're... know. They don't know. So, you know, Don Hoffman <laughs> says, look, these are, his, these are his colleagues. And his colleagues, he says are looking because they actually say there was so much promise in the life science as a result of the findings on the double helix. And so there will be the same kind of promise. This is what Shenzhen Young said in his interview with me. You guys weren't here. When he says, it's going to take us like a couple hundred years to find consciousness in the brain, but we're going to find it. Yeah. And so, no, I mean, it's not, it's more just like concrete. I, I feel like, well, but very, it is, it is science. I mean, and, and, it's, and these people are material pre- science well, is very concrete. Well, they're proceeding though in a very careful way, et cetera, et cetera. So, Don Hoffman says he was already working on perception, he was already working on these ideas from his work on visual perception. So, he thought after a long time, too, of 15 years of working in the other way, he thought, why don't I just turn this upside down and assume that consciousness generates the entire story of or experience of the physical world instead of physical world generating consciousness mm-hmm. instead of brain or matter generating consciousness let's say consciousness generates matter material world all of our experiences the spoon everything is coming from consciousness then we know that also that each little human being 
has a little different headset than every other one, so generates a slightly different material world, as we've been saying here. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the bat and the rat and the mouse and the butterfly. They're all generating different worlds. They're all all generating. Lens or something on that uh, around smell or something that yeah. yeah the butterfly does a lot so you know I mean that just makes intuitive sense it does to me too I, I, it does to me too and yet we don't want hand waving I know, you know? I'm <laughs> not hand waving anyway. right right well you know one of so, the things I reflect on personally as someone who's been doing such deep research and and had the privilege of being able to do this within the spiritual domain with yogis and rinpoches and medicine men and all kinds of things and I've witnessed literally things that I just I can't explain. Of course you can't explain. You right. know, I mean I've seen that I, yeah. I've had that experience right. And, right. and so that has been a way where I have uh, recognized that I have this thing on my you know that but I you have, have a headset. Well, I have a headset on that I'm thinking I you know it it it, it, it turned me around it emptied me out it did all kinds of things it's been quite an extraordinary and it's also been the burden of having to hold secrecy around it can't speak about it and stuff but to see that science is kind of now hovering around the mystical boundaries is very well yeah i mean i would say that science is approaching it differently though because also right because because what you were saying yes you you can see uh, a yogi levitating yeah and that's still in space-time but what it shows you is the material world is not the reality. That's right. what it shows you. That's right. But a lot of people don't believe that because we're heavily, heavily narrating right now, particularly brain science. We have been in this period of time where people have talked about my brain instead of my mind. And they've talked about their brain genetics and that they're, they're atypical and that there's this and there's that. And we've been heavily into these ideas that somehow we're going to find the reality of consciousness in the brain. So, and I think that even... But everyone you talk to who has had an experience like what you're describing will say that that experience has given them some sort of knowing that what they're encountering out there, their reality is not exactly what it seems. And maybe you need to have that kind of experience first in order to question... Uh, the way that we have constructed reality and make meaning. But every person I've talked to who's had one of those experiences is like, that was the beginning. Yes. Right. So and if you so don't those... have those experiences, then it is harder, Well, no, maybe. I mean, then you, you might be a physicist, though, sort of, who's in a much bigger framework saying... Who's finding our whole, mathematics. Our or... whole way of looking at the entire history of the universe and everything in it is actually bounded by a story that we cannot go on telling. And that story, yes, I think over time there have been many individuals who have witnessed things that show you that this is not a material world. It's a bigger story. But the collective story continues to be, if it were not true, we would not be in this COVID fear right now. You can also shut yourself down to those experiences. You can also create something where you're not having them. That's right. And so then what you see is just reifying the narrative that you're telling yourself. Well, again, let's let's try to be precise. That's because you focus on protecting yourself and promoting yourself. So if you're focusing on your own survival fitness, you will turn away... From this larger perspective that this is not the material world. You can't both be so afraid for your own survival and believe that this is not the material world. You have to 
put those two together in order to crack open something. And again, I think that Don Hoffman is doing that. So in his interface theory of reality, it's the same thing as the all of the Zen teachings around, you know, don't confuse the finger pointing at the moon for the moon itself. In other words, the finger pointing at the moon is the saying, there's a moon out there, but there's no moon out there. There is no moon. Or, you know, what is the sound of a tree falling in the forest if no one hears it? There's no sound. All of this is dependent Does on... Does a bear shit in the woods? <laughs> I know, I've heard it. If a, woman, if a woman criticizes a man and he's not around, is he wrong anyway? <laughs> but anyway. Oh, the 84,000. But okay, so the, the issue is that the what we perceive wow. as being the world is not reality. And that the more that you get modest about your experience in being able to say, here's the way I see it. Here's what I'm looking at. How do you see it? Help me understand how you see it. The closer you are then to really being scientific in the way you're speaking, because what science doesn't do is say, this is the truth. Science is always a method of inquiry, a debate. It is not a statement like, this is the truth because as homo sapiens, we can't see it. We're in the material world. We can't see the whole <laughs> We're truth. We're in the matrix. We're in the matrix. And so we can't see the truth. So we have to work with each other. We have to go through these experiences of, of hearing what the other actually thinks is the truth. Now, on a larger level where, where Don Hoffman is, basically, here's what... So when I say to him, well, what is the truth then? What is it... When you take off your, you know, goggles or your, uh, I guess whatever yeah. they're called in the, um, VR. The, the the virtual reality goggles. I don't know what they call those. Yeah, those virtual headsets. virtual yeah. reality headset. headsets. When you take your headset off, what do you think, Don Hoffman, is out there beyond space time? Like, what is generating space time? And he said an interactive network of conscious agents. Yes. Now, that is outside of space-time, so it is not located. You've got to get that it is not right. located. Yeah. And you might it's want a, to talk a little bit more about how you define those conscious agents. Right, right. That's, that's, that's very, yeah. very key. And yeah. again, I, I loved hearing him talk about it because yeah. when I heard him talk about it, it aligned perfectly with my experiences as a Buddhist practitioner and with the, the saying that's said repeatedly in Zen practice at the end of various ceremonies and at the end of various devotions is 10 directions, three worlds, all Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Mahasattvas. That means that throughout all of what we regard as space and time, there's an interactive network of conscious beings that are non-located. So they're here, they're everywhere, and they are non-located anywhere, but they're outside of space-time. So what he says about a conscious agent is based on a mathematical formula that he uses. So he's trying to generate a mathematical proposition that demonstrates to physicists that it is an interactive network of conscious agents that actually is generating 
all of evolution of what we call evolution of all species that is generating all of space-time, including all that we regard as real from a subatomic level to a cosmic level. And so here, here's the... How many are there? That Well, there's no... There's you no can't counting. Count There's no counting. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. right. It's so, like all this, the grain of sand. So, so, uh, what, <laughs> so what is a conscious agent? A conscious agent consists of only three components in his mathematical theory. It's perception, decision, and action. All right. So all conscious agents do at every level is they proceed, they decide, and they act. But if they only perce- perceived and acted, they would be predictive. But because they always decide, their actions are based on their perceptions. So they perceive, they decide and they act at the smallest infinitesimal level to the largest, as he says, if there's a God that perceives everything, that God is perceiving, deciding and acting. acting. Consequently, this is a completely non-determined Universe. There is no predetermination. However, there are patterns of conscious decision, perceive, and then you get into the the Buddhist theory of karma, which is always was, intentional action. Exactly. Yeah, I was thinking of karma all throughout this. Well, actually. that's Doctor Strange. Yeah, too. So <laughs> mention <laughs> another movie. Okay, Doctor Strange. That's well, but, very good. I, I, yeah, a Matrix, so, Doctor Strange, and right, Tron. Right. So. All conscious agents, including ourselves, we perceive, we decide, and we act. And so, but for us to generate the truth, it always is interaction outside of space-time. That's how it's generated. And at the highest and lowest level. Now, he knows, Don Hoffman knows zero about Buddhism. I mean, he's learning now because he's interacting with a lot of Buddhists, particularly people who study Yogacara. But his idea about perceive, decide, and act fits very well with karma. And so from a a perspective of Yogacara or Buddhism, these, these interactive networks then create realities. And these realities then occur within space time. And then they become our lives. And then our lives seem as though they're under our control, but they really are not because we Well, that's where I think people struggle. It's like, well, wait a minute. I'm an agent. I'm my own. I'm making decisions over here. I'm not like subject to some other conscious entity's that's decision grid that's delusion yeah that's i know but that's (laughs) That's where a lot of people are it's in real delusion and so that delusion aspect of the three poisons is the worst aspect as long as you are deluded to believe that you control your own life and that somehow you know exactly what's fair, what's not fair, you know exactly what should happen to you. This doesn't mean you turn into a vegetable and you could be chopped up by others, but it means that you Well, that's the some, easy way out. That you have some <laughs> insight into the fact that you do not run reality, that you are within a reality that you don't control, and this interactive network of conscious agents that is non-located we need to know more about that. Well, and that's also, where we're going in science, not right. spiritually at this. I mean, within Don Hoffman's work, he's going there with physics and physicists and mathematics. 
you know, which is the period of time we're in, that would be good news. And you also have extraordinary resource when you start realizing that past, present, future are also, you know, in relationship and that we've got transgenerational and collective and personal, all these different influences that all keep merging and all are part of it, all moving within us. Well, if you truly understood that there isn't any past and there isn't any future, which is, again, what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Non-linear. That right. there, is non-linear. No, there is no past and there is no future. In your actual experience, there isn't a past and there isn't a future. There's only the present moment. And yeah. you're always constructing what you think was past well, and what exactly. you think was yeah, future. You have, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's the story about the Big Bang. It's the story that you're made of stardust. It is not that you are made of stardust or there really was a Big Bang. Once you really see into what he's saying, it changes. Well, that's a great segue. And not that you want to do it yet, but does interface well with mothers and daughters. Right. Well, we're going to go into it. In terms of no past and no future. Well, you're leading us into the next. We've a lot of ground. I realize, too, you know, Polly, just in the short time that I've been with you and and a witness to your own... um, uh, the way that your own interests are changing, uh, you know, this is very exciting, and and it'll be really wonderful that you could be talking more and more with these scientists. You know, know yes. to do. You started that with Donald Hoffman, and he was so agreeable, and he stepped right in, and very open. It's a real teaching vehicle. Well, I think but he's also fairly rare. I mean, I I he's actually a nice think man. because because Donald Hoffman is kind of modest yeah, for a is. person who yeah. actually yeah. knows a lot, lot, lot. Yeah. And because I think he sees that to embrace the mathematics and the worldview that he is embracing means he has to open up to serious practitioners that have studied these same things from a spiritual perspective. He has to open up to the possibility, as Ellen Wallace said, that you know these 2,600 years that you've had spiritual adepts, particularly within these traditions in Buddhism where they've spent their lives observing That's right. the nature of reality, right. that they also have discovered something, and it, it happens to fit really well with what Donald Hoffman is studying right now. To me, Donald Hoffman, is I haven't met any other cognitive scientist who was open in the way that he's open. And I don't mean that he's open, he's not interested in practicing Buddhism or whatever, but he's interested in the dialogue. Yes. And he understands that dialogue is the basis for knowledge, that dialogue is the basis of wisdom. And at this particular moment in time... Where we've had that broken down. Well, and and many people do not see it. It's like the story that we're in right now is protect yourself from this virus without any dialogue about... Somebody else says, well, I think the virus is this. Or even the scientists, like you can look at epidemiologists who disagree very profoundly... And yet we cannot hear those epidemiologists sit down to ha- together and have a real conversation about their differences in their discoveries. And that's what we need. And we're, it affects our ability to be free to make choices that you know, best serve us. 
because well, we're locked into this. To make this, any choices at yeah, all. right, you exactly. Know? I mean, well, it goes also to the whole canceling of people and essentialism. That's right. And it's boiling people down to one idea that that's they right. have. Or, that's right. And then they're just done. They're done. I mean, so that is ignorance. Yeah. That's ignorance. That's delusion. Yeah. And that's the essence of ignorance and delusion. Before we close down this this conversation, we forgot to say something about emotional object constancy. Yeah. Yeah, what that means is that in the period of time when a human infant is developing from about 18 months to three years, that is the period of time where the infant begins to get this sense like, I'm a solid object in here and you're a solid object out there. And then starts to relate is like, I need you and I need to be close to you. Before that, they're bound through attachment and there's anxiety about separation, but there's not an ego. There's not the sense of I'm over here and you're over there. I can run away from you. You can run away from me. So that sense that I'm in here and you're over there and that sense that I need you in order to be okay. And also the feeling where you're, when you finish emotional object constancy, you're supposed to have the feeling, I am both good and bad and you are both good and bad. There's, it's not like you're bad and I'm good or I'm good and you're bad. People have a hard time with that one. But that sorting out of who you are and how you are in relation to others it's never fully finished in a human lifetime, but it's put into place. That sense that I am inside of this body is not there when you're born. So all of us have the capacity to experience ourselves as not inside of this body because we've already done that. We just weren't developed as a mature human being when we did it, but we had to first have the experience of getting in here and then that there's a world out there, then the creating of that world, etc. So that's how emotional object constancy fits in to Don Hoffman's work in the sense that he's saying that we create and construct the world and others as well as the way we perceive ourselves and others. And I was adding to that, we don't do that from birth. It's, it actually begins after we're born. And so we've all had the experience of not being. We forget about and our womb time. We forget about before. I mean, it's not even the wound. I mean, we really forget. No, womb. No, yeah, I mean, the womb is wound, like. Wound, womb. Womb. <laughs> no, but, <laughs> and mother daughter. Right, right. That's where she's going with that. But, so we forget everything really younger than about four. So it's not just the womb. It's, it's, or the it's, wound. It's or the wound. It's like we're, we're amnesic yeah. for pretty much everything before four years old. Yeah. So by the time we come into a conscious sense of ourselves, we already experience ourselves. I'm in here. The world is out there. Because we've forgotten everything else. We forgot it. But through meditation, when you, when you actually are able to perceive that the present moment really is all moments of your life, you can... You can tap back into the before four kind of life experience, but mostly just to know that you didn't come here equipped with this thing that you call an ego. You made the thing called an ego, and you always making it. You always making it. 
And if you don't notice that, then you are again, you're deluded. So, you know. well, that's a that's a very good place to end <laughs> okay. and continue. We'll yeah. continue this, but so. thank you, Polly, and wonderful having your Thanks, insight, Amber, Amber and 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 yeah. your generation as well, which is really really great. Thank you, yeah, thank okay. you. Thanks. Okay. Thanks so much for listening, and to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.